Well, this is Pastor George on the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman, and our guest today is a minor celebrity coming out of uh, a minor PCA celebrity coming out of this la- this year's General Assembly. I have Ruling Elder uh, Steve Dowling. Uh, welcome, Steve. Thank you, George. Yes, so minor. you're welcome. Yeah, very minor. <laughs> oh no, man, you were uh, you were great. So let me, if if you're not familiar and if you don't know the name. Uh, Steve was the chair of the Overtures Committee uh, this year, and, and Overtures, of course, is so much of the work of the Assembly. Of course, there's a lot of other work we, we do there, but uh, so Steve was busy corralling, corralling the 130 Overtures uh, commissioners to work on the Overtures that came to the Assembly that we would then vote on, and then Steve would was presenting them. And so I was uh, excited to have him be the first guest that we have on on uh, this podcast. So, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from, how long you've been in the PCA, where you are a ruling elder, and then we'll kind of get into the discussion. Because there's, th- I know it's going to be a great discussion. You are a Marine. Uh, thanks very much, George. Yeah, I I, uh, I appreciate first that you said I am a Marine. Uh, the you know there's no such thing as an ex Marine, right? So once again, I know Marine. I appreciate you knowing. Believe that. me, I know. Yeah. <laughs> You're well, welcome. I spent 27 years in the Marine Corps and have been in tech uh, since 2001. Um, I first started going to a PCA church at New Life in uh, upstate New York in Ithaca, which um, oh. is where Tim LaCroix is actually now the pastor. He was recently called there to that church and uh, the, had a great experience for the most part there. It had some incredible uh, ruling elders, including. Randy Stair, who wound up running the PCA Foundation for years, um, just retired, I think, last year, uh, not too much earlier than that, and uh, uh, moved around in the Marine Corps and wound up being a mobile employee when I went into tech. And so we moved from the Quantico area down to Auburn, Alabama, which is where I went to school and where I met my wife. So I'm a ruling elder at uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Auburn, Alabama now, Southeast Alabama Presbyterian. Okay, great. How long have you been a ruling elder? Uh... Well, in two different churches since um, 2003, so 20 years. Quite quite a long time. Part, part of what I do on, on this podcast is just try to encourage ruling elder involvement. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that ruling elders don't want to be involved, but it is often daunting to, uh, to be involved in the courts of the church because it's it's a machine and it's it's moving and, and how you jump onto it is difficult. So what was your trajectory to the point where you were named by John Bice, our former moderator, to be the convener of the Overtures Committee and then ultimately the chair of the Overtures Committee, which is, uh, I mean, that's no, it's no small task to try to organize all that work. And so what, what was your introduction into the polity of the PCA and being involved? Yeah, I had an incredible mentor and a man named Henry Lewis Smith who is substantially more than a minor celebrity in the PCA. He was one of the founders and just a wonderful, godly man who had two passions in life. One was mentoring younger men for service in ministry and as ruling elders as well. And the other was evangelism. He had the most incredible talent. Every time you would go to a restaurant with him for lunch, which we did weekly uh, whenever we could, um, he he would spend the first 10 or 15 minutes engaging the wait staff and it was remarkable the responses he got. He'd find out where they were from. He knew something about 
them based on some aspect of their personality, their character, their speech patterns, or whatever. It was in, it was incredible the way he could just triangulate, you know, where they were from in the country, and then he would talk to them about some piece of history from there, and then he would ask them where they go to church, ask them about their testimony. It was just remarkable. Um, that notwithstanding, not his personal qualities notwithstanding, he was a guy who spent a lot of time mentoring people. And I got mad at Presbytery one day, and afterward he came up to me and, and uh, you know, he said, can we go to lunch? And from that point on, uh, he kind of made it a, a point of mentoring me. So I was first uh, appointed to overtures. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but I've been on overtures 14 times. And that started with Henry Smith. And uh, I'll just make as a kind of an editorial comment, I would have quit after the first one. You said your purpose here is in some measure <laughs> to encourage ruling elders. I would have walked out after the first one if I wasn't so hard-headed because when I walked into the room, I thought I had done research. You know, I'd read all of these overtures. I had marked up my comments for them. I thought that um, I was ready to go. I'd made notes on these things. And immediately uh, that when the debate started, I went up and queued up at a microphone. And uh, again, I was just shocked by virtue of the fact that everybody didn't agree with me. You know, person. <laughs> I mean, it blew my mind. And it kind of got to the point where I was at the mic too much. But I refused to be daunted. You know, I, I, I felt like I had just as much right to be at that microphone as anybody. But I also had this kind of sneaking suspicion that a lot of things were being done with kind of a hand in a glove. And I didn't know where the hand was. I could just mm. see the glove. You know, there were things that were clearly previously debated. Uh, there were motions that seemed synchronized. Um, and I thought, something is going on here. Everybody's not playing, you know, from the same deck. And so I... Uh, again, refused to be daunted by that and decided I'm going to come back again. And I kept doing it. Eventually, I figured out that the hand in the glove there, for the most part, notwithstanding the emergence of some factions, you know, occasionally, uh, was really a bunch of brothers cooperating to make the process run better. And I'm glad I stuck it out. But I think with a lot of ruling elders in particular, it's pretty easy to show up at overtures and say, I'm not doing that again. I had to spend my vacation time. I had to spend all my own money. Nobody subsidized this. And and I and I hated it. <laughs> so, you know, you got to either be hard headed or you've got to walk in and realize it's going to take a little getting used to. I need to I need to I need to apprentice a little bit before I'm very effective at this. What you just said kind of clicked with me because I've heard that from a number of ruling elders. There's this idea when we come to the courts of the church, whether it's our own presbytery meeting or, or on a committee of commissioners, or particularly the overtures, and it, it feels like. There's this ongoing conversation and this group who are in the know, and 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 then a ruling elder shows up and it's like, well, I I thought we were here to do this and it feels like it's already been done and and somehow I'm out of step with it or or whatever, and so but I I think what you just explained is is probably a common thing. I mean, people have been discussing overtures, which are changes, uh, they're they're requests that are being made by presbyteries churches or individuals to the denomination to to act upon something would you say it's an accurate description or how would you define what an overture yeah, is? yeah i'd say absolutely that's the case overtures will roll up and either be something okay. that addresses a constitutional shortcoming or something to do with one of the committees or agencies of the pca so right and so we 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 see them we get to see them as soon as they get them on the website which is usually within a week of when they're submitted so and then discussions happen. And in this world of online uh, discussions, just there's all this pre-work that's already been done. 
it's not necessarily nefarious. I mean, there are, again, we, we know of like secret organizations or whatever, but like just a lot of the work is just brothers talking, collaborating beforehand. And so you get to overtures and there's already, you know, you got to think there's like almost 30 overtures and how many days did you guys have to work on them? Two days? Yeah, we start Monday morning at 10 o'clock and um, basically you go until you get done and you need to beat the clock, which is, you know, obviously technically not until Thursday, but, you know, you'll miss the whole General Assembly and all the worship sessions if you don't get to it. So now that you've moderated or chaired the Overtures Committee, is, is some of that pre-work welcome from your perspective because of how daunting it can be to try to work on these overtures? I mean, is it good that guys have already come in with some modifications that they've planned to to make to them or uh, with an idea of what they want to do with it already? Or is that sort of against the the nature of Presbyterianism where we should be coming in and deliberating those types of things in the in the process? Boy, the way you ask that makes me want to say yes, no, and 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 maybe. Okay, so uh, yes, okay, yeah. One of the very first things that that I did. By the way, I've chaired overtures twice. You can't tell by my performance, but I've done it before, and I really <laughs> wanted to do it because I thought I'll, I want to do a good job. But I also want to make sure that no brother has the experience I had at that first one that I mentioned to you. Here's the truth, and I won't mention who was chair. But by about the fourth time I got up to a microphone, this guy was saying, Brother Dowling, as if I were too dull to understand the insult, or too uh. stupid to understand the substance and shouldn't be speaking. And uh, I was morbidly offended. But, you know, at the time I was a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps. And, you know, I, I was not, I, I, I didn't, I wasn't going to be intimidated into silence. I don't think that's normally the case. You know, normally a brother rolls in there and he, he gets insulted and he's like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do this again. Right. Um, now, that I think is rare, but I asked for it. But I wanted to chair and I wanted to make sure that everybody had the experience of knowing that they have every right to be at that microphone. And if they want to continue to talk, we don't have any rules for curtailing speech unless it becomes non-germane. And I wanted those guys who hadn't done it before, and there were a lot of them, just about half that group, to feel like they could engage the microphones. And we had a bunch of them that did, and I really appreciated that. So in that sense, mm. um, I think that if the tone is set properly and you're going to talk, you're going to have um, these kinds of things that have been done a priori, that then they can be helpful. So I told the brothers exactly why we were going to categorize the overtures the way that I was proposing to, which is to bundle ones like 23 and 9 and 17 and all those into one category, and we'll deal with one, and then, you know, we'll deal with all of them, and, and maybe we'll answer them by reference to the first one, or maybe we'll, you know, not do it. Maybe we'll answer them all independently, but we'll put them in categories and deal with these things categorically so that we don't have to have so much repetition in the debate. Now... Obviously, somebody had to have constructed that. Well, the guy that primarily constructed it was Howie Donahoe, who's a master at doing that kind of thing. So when I asked Howie for help, I said, I need, I want to go ahead and categorize these things. Would you collaborate with me? Howie made the rough draft, and it was almost what was adopted. I mean, it was just, it was good work. There was no reason to second guess it and go, no, no, I need to make it my own. Now, the brothers made a couple of adjustments to it. And that was what was approved, and so we went off and we did that. But they knew there wasn't anybody in that room who didn't know that that work was done for that purpose and who didn't have the heads up on it before they were confronted with it. 
So I say yes in those circumstances. Now picture it the opposite. You come in, you're blind, you walk in for this conversation, and all of a sudden somebody's taken these things that are ordinarily constructed for you, and they've taken, you know, they pulled them out like this, and they've gone, here's this bunch, here's this bunch, here's this bunch, and here's this bunch. And you know somebody did it, but you don't know who it was. It's discombobulating. And it can take your feet off mm. under you because you immediately do not feel like you've been part of the process. So I think that a careful uh, establishment of why the work was done, who did the work, be completely transparent about it, makes it a yes. The no happens when uh, you get people who want to operate like a political block. You made the comment that that's unpresbyterian. There is not a human being in the world who could feel more strongly than I do about that. I think we operate through the courts of the church in good faith. If you want to have conversations with your brothers in good faith, that's fine. But you should not have uh, people that tra that are kind of trans-presbytery who have groupings that try to, you know, get a group of followers and then try to come in and, and, and achieve an agenda and who have done that labor all year long because they want things to go their way. Uh, I think that's a, that, that is bad. It's a no. It's not healthy, it's not good, and it definitely alienates everybody in the room who hasn't been part of that process because you literally cannot tell what the agenda is, much less who the participants are. The maybe part comes out when you've got known political entities that have emerged and one becomes the representatives of one group of people and one becomes the representatives of the other. And then perhaps um, they start to get more and more gravity because now the denomination, the administrative committee and whoever is kind of reaching out, talking to them to get the, the feel of the room, the temperature of the denomination, and, and kind of trying to satisfy both of these parties. And guess who that leaves out? Everybody else who hasn't aligned with one of those parties. So now, if you, you're, you're the only disenfranchised group in the organization can potentially be those people who refuse to play party politics and instead who operate through the courts of the church. So that's the yes, the no, and the maybe. The maybe piece is, is that if we devolve at any point into political parties, instead of having our primary faithfulness uh, in the church courts, operating as church courts, then I think we're kind of, we, that's where it starts to stretch the limits and becomes dangerous. So the yes, properly explained, yeah. the improperly explained, and the maybe if we devolve into political factions instead of courts of the church. Uh, that's actually a great, helpful sort of taxonomy to it, even, because I mean, it is natural to uh, – we love the denomination. I, I know you love the PCA. I love the PCA. I love yeah. speaking with brothers across – presbyteries across the country. And so it's just natural that there's just conversations going on and conversations among like-minded people. And so there's nothing nefarious or wrong about that. But I guess w would you say like if it, when it becomes overly strategic and planned – outside the courts of the church, that's when it starts to maybe start to cross the line into the area of the no that you said? I might go back one level and just say, if transparency isn't the primary thing, then you start to degenerate into danger zone. So the very first thing would be, do I know who the players are, who these friends are who are meeting and talking and so on, so that I can understand what they're doing? If it's a secret to me, if it's a black box, I don't see how that can possibly be healthy. It, it, it's clearly, uh, you know, I don't see any other way to uh, understand it except as manipulation of some type, uh, as political action or whatever. Mm. If something like that were to emerge in the denomination, 
Uh, and, you know, it always threatens to because we're, in the end, sinful people, and we we want our way. We think we're right. We're getting it right for the church. You know, if not for us, who knows what God would do, we, you know, because obviously he's not going to get it right. He needs us to do that. So, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, seriously, all kidding aside, it's it's um, if if we degenerate in that kind of thing, it's a problem. But the biggest problem is, is are we doing it in secret or are we being transparent? Does everybody have a chance to participate, take it into their presbyteries, discuss the issues in good faith and then roll back and have a conversation as a denomination in good faith and then live with the vote? which is the other part. One of the things that you lose when you degenerate into political activities instead of the, the, the courts of the church is, um, you know, you forget that you're required to submit. And if you've been told, well, as an example, we've had SJC cases. SJC is the final word on something. It rolls up when that decision is made. It is made. It's over. It, the, the judicial process has run its full course. And if you're the guy standing back saying, they didn't get it right, I know better because I know Bob. You know, you, you've got a problem in your relationship with the rest of the organization because you just won't submit to the wisdom of, of your brothers operating through the courts of the church. So I think that's also an ancillary piece of it. But my first piece is, is if it's transparent, we're probably healthy. If it's not transparent, probably not healthy. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Like I remember, I remember last year when we were right in the thick of the side B discussions and overtures. You know, it was communicated multiple times, and and uh, our state of clerk Brian Chapel was the one communicating it. And I'm just saying what was what was happening. How he said, well, both sides got together, and 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 crafted some overtures that they believed got to the heart of the issue. And I know a lot of guys were were kind of rubbed the wrong way by that, and saying, well, what do you mean both sides got together? Like this overture doesn't like. Am I supposed to just trust? these two sides that wrote this overture, like, I don't think it addresses necessarily the heart of the matter just because we're told two sides and then who was included in these two sides, you know? And so it gets kind of, it, it gets, it gets kind of messy, I guess, because again, we go back to the, the need to have pre-work, but if you don't feel like you're a part of the group that has the say or the voice you feel like you're being left out if you know and you like who's in who's in these discussions and you don't you know well i think if um if you know you're a first timer and you come in and people are explaining to you and embracing you it makes it easier to sit back and go i'd like to learn and i'd like to be taught so that i can be effective next year um you know on the other hand if you're confronted confronted with a fait accompli that's probably not going to happen the the thing that you mentioned I really uh, would never have brought up here, but now you have. And I uh, <laughs> I felt very strongly about that last year, and I'm, I'm confident that Dr. Chapel will not be angry with me for telling you, but I asked him at General Assembly if I could have a call with him, a, a personal call, and uh, he said, yeah, and I waited a few months and then set up a call to talk to him, and that was the subject. I said, when you stand mm. up there and you talk about two sides, what you're telling me is that if I'm not affiliated with one of those sides, you're not talking to me. You're talking to them. I said the way that I assess the um, the uh, and by the way, I want to get it on the table right away. He was very gracious, very receptive. He, he's a smart guy, and you know, and not a jerk. Uh, so he understood what I was telling him. And um, I, I, I won't... By, by the way, Steve, let me just add that I I had a similar call with him in in uh, in about the September. 
late August, early September timeframe and uh, very gracious to take the call, very gracious to hear that. He, he said he understood how how that could be a turnoff or taken the wrong way or well, whatever. nobody here so in this I think, podcast is going to believe we didn't conspire on this but but before god i never heard it not sure i actually i didn't know no you're right you're right i i didn't when i brought that up i had no idea i had no idea yeah, you you, you, you were even bothered by it. actually i i thought the way you were responding to me you were like get on board george two sides got together big deal you know no absolutely <laughs> i didn't not. know you had the same sort of objection look man you know you can't have healthy conflict when you're entitled to a vote, and you and the you think you're participating in it, but it's already a settled issue, uh, at least in the minds of a lot right. of people. But if you look at the voting from that year that you're talking about, two years ago, all the most polarizing votes were in the neighborhood of 75% to 25%, which ought to tell anybody that um, the pressures from either side of the spectrum to which he was referring are still not the majority. And uh, we all ought to be able to operate in good faith and to kind of, I think, address this contextual thing where, you know, I want to know who those players are. That, and we need to be con conscious that that kind of work is not healthy. You know, working out proposals, publishing them, putting them out where we can all see them. I'm a big fan of that. Go ahead, do that stuff. we got brilliant men in this denomination. All of our teaching elders have graduate degrees, for crying out loud. These are not stupid people. I think we all would benefit from hearing from them. But when you hunker down in the ghetto with your, your like-minded people and you decide you're going to get something done, and then you surprise the rest of it, the, the rest of us, I think you get what you got in those votes two years ago. You get people who go, no. This seems like activism. Right, right. Together. I'm not doing it. Well, you know, and, and what I even told Dr. Chapel was I don't – I get why people were brought together who were viewed as because the issue had already gone one round and went nowhere. We were now going to embark on a second round and you know, we've gone on a third round. And so that's commendable actually to get people on opposite sides of an issue to try to see if we have common ground. The, the problem to me wasn't that men on different sides of an issue were brought together to try to, see if if this could be worked out the problem is then trying to say well that somehow becomes the the baptized language that we all have to get on board with <laughs> yeah. you know what i'm saying like let those men speak for themselves they're in the room actually rather than saying well person a and person b has agreed on this so you you all need to get on board and that's not what he said to be sure but i'm just saying that's how it felt to certain people what I said to him is, is that what you're telling me is, is that if I'm not aligned with one side or the other, I don't have that access to you. Mm -hmm. I, I just have to stand out here and go through the motions of, of uh, having, you know, the bills be framed as an example, and either I validate them or I invalidate them, but I haven't been privy to any of the most meaningful conversation. I don't know what concessions were made. I don't know why they were made. It, it, it's a black box to me, right? So... I, I'm glad to know that you did that. I'm glad to know that you had the integrity to reach out to him. And I'm glad to know that you had the same experience with him that I did. You know, the graciousness and the and the receptivity. Very gracious. Yes. He, he, he acknowledged. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I kind of assume people know how the overtures work and all that. And I don't want to get too much into it. Only to say, because there might be some that don't. But I really appreciate our system. 
Steve. I, I appreciate that, you know, the assembly as long as it is. And you see how long debate and discussion could go on. The Like, can you imagine if we were trying to make decisions on 30 overtures as as a group of 2,200 commissioners? And somebody, I mean, the whole, you know, substitute motion and amend this. And, and so I love that we have a committee that the that is the overtures committee where two men from each press tray can go to it. And do that very, very hard work, which took you guys all of two full days to get things into a, a way such that we can vote on them in the assembly. And there is no substitute motions. Uh, I guess, I guess minority report is a, is a substitute motion, but that would have to come out of overtures. And so is there, there wasn't any that we didn't take overtures recommendation on. Is that right? In the end, no. Uh, that was that was pretty interesting. Yeah, isn't that awesome? I mean, that's like yeah. So, for for listeners, the overtures committee. I, I keep saying thirty. How many overtures were there? Twenty. So close enough. Twenty-four. Uh, there were more than that, but not oh, twenty-four. Right. Overtures committee overtures. So the overtures committee made recommendations on all of those, and all of their recommendations were taken. Of all those 24, there was only one minority report coming out of the Overtures Committee, meaning a, a group of men disagreed with the majority and they had the numbers to produce a minority report. And that was discussed on the floor. And the Assembly still went with the majority of the Overtures Committee. And to me, this means our system works. Well, do you have anything to add or say about that? No, I think it definitely does. Um I'm a big fan of the system. I like, again, the transparency. I like the integrity of playing in the sun and, um, you know, having every man have a right to stand up and, and speak and be heard and, uh, you know, and to be convinced, right? And so I like it. Uh, the only thing I regret is that that was a, a narrow vote in the end on that overture. And, and I think that um, that means that we'll be dealing with it again. And I think that my own personal hope would be that on its substance that the uh, that the arguments are framed properly. You know, the, the, the two sides of that argument are not if you don't allow direct atheist testimony in courts of the church, you're for domestic and sexual abuse. Contrarily, if you want to allow them, then you're against domestic and sexual abuse. Those are not the two sides. The two sides are... It's a false dichotomy, right? Yeah, we never, ever have allowed atheists into court and put them in a position to give direct testimony because they will not swear an oath or cannot swear an oath to something that's not themselves. I mean, it's completely self-centered adjudication. There's no point of reference for the morality that's attached to the individual and so on. But listen, George, the, the truth is, is that it's almost irrational to exclude atheists for this reason. We already take evidence from every single source. Doesn't matter. We even allow hearsay evidence. We are the church court, and we have a lower bar for evidence because our real metric is above the appearance of impropriety, right? It's not we have to nail you there. We gotta beat, we've got to beat beyond a reasonable doubt. No, if it smells bad, it is bad. We declare it, and we call you to repent, and, and you know, that's the way the church court works. So our bar is way low. We take anything that can come in front of the court, the session or the presbytery, and they review it and they assign the credibility to that. Now, 
notwithstanding an argument about you shouldn't rely on credibility alone, and that's why you shouldn't have atheists in, in the in the system, my own struggle with it is, do you really discount the testimony of an atheist more than you do an avowed believer in an idol, uh, a false god? I mean, I to me, it's in the end, it's a little bit irrational. And, uh, you know, I know that there was one comment made that we need to restrict it more fully, that we need to go back and just have Christians testify. Uh, that is an overstatement. And there's no way that we could, that justice would be served by those kinds of restrictions. So what's the real appropriate thing here? And in my own mind, I think it's probably the right thing to put all the emphasis on the court and the court's responsibilities before God, because you know that they're making vows in good faith. You know, if they're not, they're, they're calling on God to, to be the witness and um, and allow whatever testimony comes in and just assign whatever amount of significance to that testimony that you want to. If that argument would have gone that way, it probably would have prevailed because I don't see the brothers making distinctions between someone who believes in, I mean, technically you could be a Satanist. I threw that out in the argument. You know, you could swear to Satan. Technically, the book doesn't disallow it, only allows atheism. I don't see the qualitative difference. So I think you've taken a, a different position than I thought you would have taken. So are you are you're saying it almost sounds like you you're saying you would have atheists testify, or you're not? No, I'm saying that I, I see the rational argument there. That's the argument. I'm saying the argument isn't the emotional argument about you're for domestic abuse or you're against domestic yes. abuse based on whether you allow atheists or not. The real question is why do we disallow when we allow everything else? And let's have an honest discussion about that, because either the bar is low or the bar is high. What what are the legitimate uh, barriers there to who you have testify? You know, it should it be maybe tightened up a little bit more? I don't know, but that's a debate that I think ought to happen because uh, with that single exclusion, I don't see the moral superiority of the atheist over a, a Hindu. Or I agree with you. I agree with you that, but that's why I would I take I would take the other position and just say only Christians should. And, and I I heard what you said about that. And my my point is, who has standing in in the church? Like Jesus Christ is is the head of the church, and the church courts are a function of the church. Church discipline is instructed by our Lord for the church. Uh, I I don't see that that other non-christians have any sort of standing in that but i would i would i'm in favor of all evidence that's produced to be used in the courts of the church i just am not a fan of non-christians testifying in a court of the church well i certainly argued that anyway as you know and and prevailed i'm just saying that we wanted to for me to be swayed it would have to take on the the rational character of okay why why atheists and then why all these others and if we're going to allow documentary or physical evidence from any source, then how do you deal with that? One of the things that was not touched on in debate and nobody asked a question about is how do how do even reports come in from atheists or people who don't have standing in the church? And they come in through you guys. You, you, if you got a problem with a, with a minister, you go to a, another minister, another teaching elder, and you bring that to them, and then they take it forward and uh, make it known and and you know that could because they have the standing to do it that's what the book requires right so we have avenues that might have been discussed in that context but it's a really in my mind a very complex logical argument and, and a theological argument that i'd love to see exposed but not not uh 
not around whether you're for or against domestic abuse. So I agree with everything you just said there. During this debate, while you as the moderator of Overtures were pre was presenting and answering questions, you actually shared, shared some personal stuff there about... I don't mind. Yeah, well, I mean, the reality is, is that I felt that the minority report was rooted primarily in emotionalism, and it did revolve around um, if you're for this, then you're a good guy, and if you're not for it, then you're for domestic abuse. Now, I know that I know Tim McCroy, and I know that that was not what he was saying and that, not where his heart is on it. But it was the form of the argument. And after I heard it, I thought, I'm a rational guy. I like rational arguments. I, I studied logic because I was horrible at math. You know, um, th th This argument needs to be deconstructed and dealt with in a logical manner. And, and yet, this is a real issue, and it makes it look like those of us who want to deal with it in a more deliberate, logical manner are cold-hearted. And so I shared that my daughter, uh, when she was in college at Auburn, had gotten, she was the duty driver. I didn't put this detail in, but she was the, the driver for some girls at a Christmas party, and she got drugged, and she was raped, and she nearly died. And she nearly died because she couldn't deal with the the pain and the embarrassment, the humiliation of being treated like a piece of garbage. And uh, so she was nearly starving herself to death. We couldn't figure out, we couldn't figure out anything to do. And she had a boyfriend at the time who finally came forward and violated her, you know, her wishes, but told us what had happened. And uh, we were able to get her into counseling. And, and my testimony there wasn't engendered to uh, or wasn't intended to engender sympathy for me in any way. It was merely to say, I'm not cold-hearted about this. If I could find one shred of evidence or could hear from one person who could bring that guy, the, those perpetrators to justice, I would do it. If I knew who they were, I'd probably go full taken on them. The, uh, the reality is, though, that those things are the purview of civil authorities, not church courts. And um, in the end... The, the, the ability of a, an atheist to testify about that wouldn't have done one thing or the other in a church court. Uh, so, um, I, but the point was to say, look, it's an emotional issue, but it's an emotional issue for a lot of us who you may not think are very emotional too. This one's close to home. I would venture to say that most of the men in, this, in that room have not had to endure that. But I'm going to tell you, George, that um, that's my testimony, and I struggle with getting over it because I was completely powerless to do anything about it and completely powerless to minister to my daughter. I couldn't move the dial at all. I was just watching her die for almost a year. And, uh, and, and yet her testimony is one of power and victory. And she delivered it at church on uh, Good Friday, uh, the year after it happened. And um, uh, thinking about that almost reduces me to tears. It's so overwhelmingly powerful what God has done with her. She's married to a godly man now. She has two incredible little children. Um, uh, God is God is so good. But that argument needs to be a rational argument, not an emotional argument, because emotionally, there wasn't a man in that room that I don't believe is in the same place that I am on it. So I, I was going to ask, I was like, is how is she doing now? And it sounds like the Lord has really uh, redeemed that that part of her life um, and, and she's but she it's her testimony and again you know that's mine you heard mine and i don't think she would ever 
restrained me on it, but uh, but I wish that those men could hear it from her because it would validate everything mm. Tim LaCroix was saying and at the same time drill it into the reality of the spiritual world. And um, it, it's just powerful to hear from her. It's seriously wonderful. Wow. You know, you mentioned so Tim LaCroix and his... It, it, there were a lot of arguments he could have made. I'm not sure why he went the the route he did, you know, um, and even there was even some fear in there about, well, this is how we're going to be reported in the news. I almost felt like it was like telling the news how to trash the denomination. But what I saw online and and I and I have a, a good relationship with Tim, we've. We've hung out at general assemblies and and speak every time and and so um, I think if he could get that that one back maybe he'd want it back because a lot of his uh, people who agree with him on, on on a lot of things were not happy that they felt like the best arguments weren't put for, forth for this in 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 place of emotionalism and what it ended up doing and I know why you you shared what you shared because it. it, it there is in a sense where we're being painted as heartless if we disagree with certain things. And obviously it's very personal for you. And, you know, and I, I think the same thing was happening with the side B discussions and debates the previous two years, we didn't have hardly any this year, but where if by, by us wanting to codify in the book of church order, how an officer can, uh, relate to their indwelling sin and 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 communicate that we were being acted like we were heartless like we didn't have this in our lives like like we must not be dealing with this in our churches and nothing could be further from the truth so many of the the people that you know that that I would agree with and had agreed with me on on the side B issue and against revoice and against what was going on are dealing with it in our churches right now and um in other words we're not it's not that we're just like ignorant to the to the issues and and in very sensitive ways i mean members of of the church that were baptized and grew up here it's painful and so i, I think that's important we need to get away from emotional argumentation i mean we can we can express why our heart wants or votes certain ways because of our perspective but but we have to be uh, believing the best about our brothers, they ought to be believing the best about us, and and we need to be putting things in our constitution that are that are workable, logical, and handle handle the issues the right way, not based on emotionalism. So anyway, well, I, I like the way you said that because my mind was here. the The fact is, is that when we make emotional arguments, we villainize the opposition, and we are not enemies. You know, mm. uh, the people who voted against that or for it, neither one are my enemies. We're there all supposedly doing the same thing, which is honoring Christ, to treat brothers who are trying to settle an issue in a God-honoring way like they're the enemy makes them the enemy. And and that's a problem. Uh, mm. You know, So I think the emotionalism has the effect of villainizing. So it wasn't that nothing was done, but this is also how our system works. These are going to come back next year, and I, I think that's fine. I mean, I think I think this is part of the refining process. Once again, t uh, 150 people in overtures or over 2,000 people in, in the in the assembly can't, if it can't get something to a workable form, 
I mean, like, like these, these could take weeks and months to craft. You can't do it in minutes and, and hours and minutes, you know? And so I like the mechanism of referring back or even a no vote, which means I hope you heard the debate and the discussion. Like you said, that the one we just discussed was a very close vote. So we are sure it's coming back next year and hopefully brings it back in a form that they, they heard and they listened to some of the concerns and objections from the people that voted it down. I mean, that would be, that would be the way this should work. This is how we get it to the point where it can be added to our constitution. Yeah, and down the road of the one on background checks. Look, that's a pragmatic problem. You know, right now the churches are responsible for that. Um, all the churches, probably all, I don't know that for a fact, but all the ones I know of carry insurance. Um, and, you know, because we, we're not perfect at figuring out who the bad guys are, we have got a whole doctrine around it with the visible and the invisible church, right? So, um, you know, part of the problems with that particular overture were what background check? What's a sufficient background check? Well, it's nowhere evident in there. We talked earlier about getting too detailed in the BCO, and I can't remember whether we were, we were recording at that time or not, but you know, now you're going to write in the qualitative descriptors of an adequate background investigation into the Book of Church Order. Uh, this is taking the constitutional documents that we've got down into policy manuals. I mean, it's uh, so there are issues like that that make that a more difficult thing uh, to do. Practically everybody is doing background checks of some type. Uh, we just live in a, in, a, in a country now and in a society now where you're foolish if you don't do something. But leaving that to the discretion of the local courts is probably the right thing to do because as we debated the details, it became obvious that one size isn't going to fit all here. Uh, you know, one, some churches can afford to do FBI level background checks. And others are going to ask the local sheriff, hey, do you know Joe? Is he, you know, is he a bad guy? Well, I mean, it's it, it very uneven and therefore very uneven in its enforcement, which is the real long-term problem. Okay, what if you think somebody violated that? How are you going to adjudicate against this loose language? And you can't get there from here. Mm. I, I'm very sympathetic to what those brothers were trying to accomplish, but I actually don't see a way that that one can be amended or fixed without... without without us really changing the way our constitution functions, you know, where it becomes a tool of that type. I, I think, I think I, I've heard conversations, um, cause I, I'm online and social media and all that around, uh, j just a basic statement telling presbyteries to come up with policies around what they, what they want to do with background checks within their presbytery. And, and to your, to your point. So I did a, a Twitter poll. I don't, are you on Twitter? Technically. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, I did a Twitter it poll and uh, it, 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 it's with 246 PCA churches. And again, there's no way for me to validate that on a Twitter poll, but uh, over 92% already do background checks and the vast majority of, of pastors and the vast majority of that 88%, 87% do it on pastors, staff, children's volunteers. So that's to your point, you know, and you say, well, it's a huge problem that the seven point something percent don't. Well, the truth is, I mean, we have a lot of smaller churches in the denomination, we have a lot of churches with no children in them. We have a lot of churches yeah. with pastors that might have been there for 20 years before people were doing background checks regularly. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons. It's not, you can't just assume that it's because people don't value 
these kinds of things. You've brought it up a few times. You brought it up with the discussion before about the atheists and if, well, if you voted this way, it must mean this. And if you voted that way, it must mean that. And that's just this false dichotomy and package deal ethics where we, we assume too much about a person's vote and you attribute something to their, what, what their core belief system is. And it's just not, it's not dignified. It's not Presbyterian. It's not how we ought to be operating in the church. There's all kinds of reasons to vote yes or no. And the unforeseen consequences of getting it wrong in the BCO could have very serious consequences for, for victims, for instance. And so there's nothing wrong with going back to the drawing board and getting it right. Also, it's important to note that we did ratify an a, a, a abuse victim provision, protection provision uh, this year. So last year's overture that went through the press came back and was ratified at this General Assembly, making it an action of this General Assembly uh, that, you know, abuse victims don't have to testify in the presence of their abusers, which has been a, a huge concern. And uh, before that, there wasn't a provision for that. And you know, for the last three assemblies, there's been overtures around ordination requirements and human sexuality, and there's been overtures around uh, abuse and and the courts of the church and how we handle those things. And it seems like if you get overly prescriptive, things don't pass. And if you get and 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 the only things you can get past are things that are vague enough to allow everybody to operate the way they're operating. <laughs> You know, and, and it, to me, it just goes back to this idea that we do have differences in philosophy of ministry. And nobody wants to add to the BCO to add to the BCO. We, we, we add to the BCO because we think it's going to accomplish something. But if we put language in there that is allows everybody to keep doing what they're already doing, then there's no need to add it. <laughs> well, you, I'm you made the point earlier about the health, the healthiness of the Presbyterian form of government and the uh, operation of church courts is church courts and and you know in the end when you you have overtures and you say we think we agree on this even if it's an overwhelming majority uh you still have to go back out to the presbyteries if it's something that's unacceptable to a majority of them or i beg your pardon to a minority that's substantial enough because they have to have two-thirds approval right then the the things fail mm -hmm. so if you take big bites at the apple then you better make very sure that you've got pretty much universal support or you're wasting your time when it goes out to presbyteries as you're well aware and then you've got the wild card of the subsequent pres uh, general assembly having to ratify the thing so you've got two general assemblies one overtures committee and then debates in every presbytery about whether the things are actually going to become law and everybody can find reasons to say no to something I was recently told by a senior executive in my company, anybody in this company can tell you no, hardly anybody can tell you yes. Like, that's the way it is when these overtures <laughs> go out. So we, you, we, when we collaborate uh, in the ways that we do, and we take these bites that we think are coherent and helpful and doable, it is incrementalism. I mean, it's really the way that you got to refine it. Otherwise, arguably, you fall off into the undersubscription, oversubscription problems, and so on. So I just... I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just drilling it back to something that you said previously. This system. <laughs> no, I, I what you said is really is is really very helpful. It's right. So I, you might be the guy to know. Has there ever been an overture 
or maybe it's happened a lot and I'm just not aware of it, like that has passed the, the first General Assembly, passed the two-thirds press and then comes back to the next GA and wasn't ratified? Not, not while yes. I'm there that I can recall. Yeah. Something else as we were talking, I was just thinking about as a few minutes ago, we were saying, you know, like we don't want to add things to the BCO that might not really change anything. I, I think going back to our process, the pro the process itself helps refine the denomination. Like for instance, we just ratified Overture 29 and Overture 31 from last year right. around ordination requirements and, and officer uh, qualifications. There is nothing in Overture 29 that's not already in the Westminster Confession of Faith or in our Book of Church Order or in the in the scripture references that are cited in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And yet, the two-year or three-year process, I think, has refined the denomination to have a better understanding of concupiscence, a better commitment to progressive sanctification it ought to make pe people more weary uh, wary of trying to minimize indwelling sins effect on on people and so i i'm not convinced that overture changes anything constitutionally there's again i don't think i, I nobody's shown me anything in overture 29 that we have approved now that's not already in the standards but the process has refined us does that does that make sense Oh, yeah, not only makes well, of course it does to me because I agree with you. <laughs> I don't think it did much at all. But I think you you touched on an important factor of it. I mean, the debate was legit. The debate was real. We had to see just how acute the argument was and how expansive it was. You know, how many men of good faith fell into different places there. And, for and you know, you touched earlier on attributing why somebody voted a specific way to a specific motive. You don't know why these guys did what they did, you know, why they're in one camp or the other on that. But it's a, it became obvious to me through the course of debate that it's not just digital. It's not because they believe this or they believe that. I mean, it was a very, very broad spectrum of opinions. Some truly great insights brought up. Also, this isn't terribly effective with me. Um, I'm as sentimental as anybody, but I don't like to argue that way. Some of these ministers who are operating with people who are in pretty extraordinary circumstances, right? Uh, like all they do is minister to AIDS patients or something. Hearing their experiences really helps ground you and where they're coming from. And it makes it easier to appropriate what they're trying to tell you based on their experience, even if rationally or biblically you don't think it lines up. And I think all of that is healthy. I mean, it, it turns them from like just obtuse villains, you know, in a secular sense, into just brothers who are just trying to please the Lord. And uh, you can disagree with them vehemently, but it, it's humanizing to have that debate. Pat Lencioni, you ever read his books, like The Five Dysfunctions of a Team or anything like that? Yes. They're brilliant, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I learned everything in a one-hour read of Five Dysfunctions that I learned in 27 years in the Marine Corps, and that is you want to produce something worthwhile you got to be able to hold people accountable. You can't hold them accountable unless they, unless they can have healthy conflict and buy in. And uh, they're not going to do that unless they operate from a foundation of trust. Well, our process builds trust. It builds the ability to have those healthy arguments. And therefore, I think inevitably, meaningful things happen, even though I can't always see them. But then a few years later, you're like, wow, well, I'm glad we did that. You know, so anyway, I just throw that out for your yeah. consideration because I think you're no, really totally about the health thing. Oh, 
Well, thanks. So I, to, as we start to look to wrap up here, I thought there were two interesting overtures in particular, just, just as a, an overall summary. I, th I thought coming into this general assembly, there was a lot less heat and a lot less pressure regarding the overtures. Um, and you could speak to that maybe in a, in a second or two, but but two overtures in particular that I thought were had interesting outcomes that I wasn't used to seeing, because usually an overture the com the overtures committee will uh, they they may edit it, they may not they they're going to recommend to affirm it to reject it or to refer it to uh, to answer it in reference to another overture or to refer it back, but these two in particular I, I had the process was definitely new to me. So one was Overture 7, and the other was what happened with the Overture against medical and, and, and biological gender reassignment procedures, particularly for minors. And so I, I wanted to kind of hit on those a little bit. So Overture 7, which you mentioned way early on in this, was a, was a, an RAO change, a Rule of Assembly Operations change that was seeking to get greater transparency around what our agencies and permanent committees were doing and what they were recording in the minutes as to policy changes and, and how they were uh, fulfilling General Assembly mandates for them. Why I said this was interesting for our listeners who may not know is it was referred by the, the stated clerk. So this, the stated clerk says which group will handle which overtures. Obviously, most of them go to the overtures committee, but this overture in particular, Overture 7, was not given to the Overtures Committee, but it was given to 11 other committees or per permanent committees or agencies. I think it was 11 because it was going to affect MNA, MTW, RUF, uh, the Covenant College, Covenant Seminary, all these other groups even went to the Administrative Committee. Of course, I, I hope it becomes obvious that how could the Assembly really ever act on 11 potentially different or divergent recommendations. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, it had the potential to really, I, one, uh, wasn't one really, it was going around, you know, Twitter and, and other things like this is going to derail the assembly. Um, but yet there was a motion within the overtures committee, which you, which you chaired to assume that overture. And that really posed some interesting constitutional questions. Can the Overtures Committee take up an overture that was not given to it and was given to other committees and agencies? So maybe, I don't know, jump in on this conversation anywhere you want, any way the way I set it up or, or however well, you want to take I'd it. I'd say that the answer to the question of whether the Overtures Committee can is now answered, yes, because it did. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's is funny. that a scary precedent, though? Uh, I wasn't thrilled about the whole thing. Uh, first off, it caught me flat-footed. I did not expect that the first thing that we dealt with, um, again, lots of experience on overtures. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna enjoy this. You know, I'm getting old. I'm, I'm 67. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I love these. Oh, I wouldn't have guessed. Yeah, it's gonna be a blast. You know, and bang. You know, now we've got a dispute about process. So, uh, the, the, the. Interesting thing to me is there's two parts to this. There's the substantive part and there's the process part. On the substantive piece, which is simpler, what that overture sought to do was require those committees 
to report their compliance for things that the General Assembly had told them to do. And um, now they were coming back and saying, no, we're not going to, when it was left to the committees. That was their answer. Well, why was that their answer? It's because my understanding from the state clerk is, is that their first answer was sure. They all agree. No problem. Now, notwithstanding that that was going to be a weird thing because they don't really vote as a, a quorum, what prevails, a majority of them? I mean, it's kind of an interesting question by itself. But they originally had said, that's fine. And then they realized that the way it was written, they were going to have to report on every policy change that had been made for the last 50 years, little ones and big ones. And it was an exorbitant amount of work in their view. And so they reconvened and said, no, the answer is no, we're not going to do it. Uh, the Overtures Committee took it up. The State of Clerk came in and addressed the Overtures Committee and said, you can't do that. You don't have the authority to do it, RAO 11, I think I'm getting that right, uh, says that that's my job. And other brothers argued, no, the, the, you, anything that bears on the rules of assembly operation or constitutional issues must go to the Overtures Committee. Uh, therefore, you should have routed it and you didn't. Now, if you read the two citations out of the RAO sections on that, you can see where each party was coming from. It can literally be read in either way. And the guys, uh, some of the men who had helped write the RAO were insistent that it would be read one way and others were insistent that it be read the other. Um, what ultimately happened was Overtures debated it and on the substance came up with the answer with an amendment that limited the, you know, we're not going back 50 years. This is when the GA tells you to do something for any kind of a material change in your policy or whatever else you have to say how you complied. Okay, so that fixed it. The state clerk represented on behalf of all of the committee heads. I think that they will all agree with this. We're on board with you guys. So the substantive piece had a nail driven through it before the assembly started. Then the process piece was an issue because obviously when I stood up to brief that, I wondered, do I tell all the brothers that we've got a processed food fight going on or do I just deal with the substance? I mean, it's the 50th anniversary, uh, anniversary, we're rolling out of communion. Good news, here comes a nuclear hand grenade, right? You know, uh, So my desire, my bent is, is to just tell everybody everything and let them figure out where they stand on it. But my judgment on it was, I don't think that we should have that food fight. This is a legitimate dispute. Nobody's out to shoot each other over it. This is one of those places where the stuff we talked about previously that will look like a hand in the glove next year will just be earnest men going and trying to make sure that this doesn't happen again by clarifying that language. Dr. Jay Nykirk has actually already done that. Uh, if what he's written is, I'm, I intend to sponsor it in Southeast Alabama, I'm sure others will as well, but if this gets through, it'll be a bulletized list of routing that, that cannot be misconstrued and we'll just stop with this mutual, like, no, it's this, no, it's that, by making it much more specific and taking it off the table. So we get up to deal with the uh, this overture because it had to be dispensed with prior to the assembly undertaking its business as a, a change to the rules. And I decided to just move the thing based on its substance, knowing that all the committees and all of overtures agreed on it. And uh, the brothers overwhelmingly, I think, unanimously, no, I think there were 80 votes against it. And there were probably people who had a reason of their own for doing that. But um, it was an overwhelming vote to just do it. And we started the assembly with peace. On the other hand, that process thing does need to be fixed. And I assure you, you'll see that on overtures next year. And it'll probably pass because 
if it's anything like what Dr. Nykirk's written up, it's very explicit, very clear. Nobody could de debate whether yeah. it says one thing or the other. It, it was, I mean, I, I, not to be hyperbolic, and we, we, of course, we believe in you know God's hand in everything, but really, it, it created peace, and I believe I took that as from the Lord, and it shows I you also. Too, yeah, well, great. I'm glad. Yeah, so because for two days, all we heard as every committee of commissioners meeting met MTW, MNA, RUF, it took forty minutes to an hour in some of the in, in so many of these meetings. I mean, how much time was spent, and yet overtures got it. And I know you guys spent some time on it, but it really shows the wisdom of having one group consider all the input, and believe me, the input was there, and 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 make two changes, two small changes to the wording that meant a big thing to quell all the confusion. One was adding the word material changes instead of right. just having changes. Yeah. And Right. And then the other one was to add the phrase something about within the last year, which protects against again all these agencies from having you know and, and for listeners you know the, this example had come up like well if covenant colleges changes their their parking policy is that need to be documented and like every little no like these are multi-million dollar organizations within the denomination that have to be able to make decisions and run all year long and we don't expect every little tiny thing but we do expect to uh to to know important things, major things, and, and the things the denomination has instructed, that those are being done. And so it really, with those two changes, it, it just went off without a hitch. And so I, I take that from the Lord. And thank you, by the way, for your, I mean, you, I, you have to navigate some weird stuff, man. That was definitely like, do you even have authority to be taking it up? And you guys just, I think, handled it. And you handled it wisely. And and the Lord guided the peace. And you know, the state of clerk went went along with it, and and so did the the different committees, and and that was, uh, I think that worked out great. I was just going to tell you that um, you know Fred Greco was a masterful parliamentarian when he was elected. I thought Fred is part of this argument. He understands. He he helped write the RAO in that section, and uh, Brian, the the state of clerk, is a is a dignified gentleman. Nobody's anxious to start off the general assembly with a process issue that we can just go fix later if we're all in agreement on the substance and so i did have a high degree of confidence in in making that motion to just do it on the substance that it was gonna that it was gonna go and uh it was it wasn't uh machining it or whatever else i just felt like you did that's why i affirmed it so quickly that the lord is in it because the peaceful answer if you agree on everything is don't fight about it you know if you already agree mm. don't fight about it fix that later so yeah i like your comments i think yes on, on on point there oh thanks for that yes and 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 what i was what i was going to say is just that's news for our listeners uh that steve shared with us there will be an overture probably next year that's going to try to help streamline this to prevent uh the same kind of thing from happening uh the, this the second one and maybe one of the last things we'll talk about was the the statement to the government on this uh the the transgender issue but particular to gender reassignment surgeries originally it was going to be referred back by the overtures committee but somebody i think made a motion to reconsider it yes. and why i'm highlighting this one steve is because and and you can obviously uh you're, you're going to correct me or you'll you'll help shape this for us but basically the original statement was was scrapped and y'all didn't write a new statement you wrote for the moderator to appoint uh, 
not you. I mean, you you moderated this, but I mean, they wrote they approved for the moderator to appoint a, a commission to write the statement and 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 just send it. And there was stipulations on what it had to include. And basically what Overtures did here, it took a complex statement that would have been too hard to craft and reduced it to a, a principally what wanted to be communicated and then empowered people to communicate it. And the assembly approved it. Is that a normal thing? I mean, has that has that been done before where the the original overture was basically scrapped and a new overture was written by overtures and in its place and then used as, as the overture. It's not that uncommon, but what made that one uncommon was, you know, and by the way, you're not supposed to do that. Not what happened, but take an overture and make it something it wasn't and then pass that overture. This came about as that was my language. I, 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 I'm trying to define what it was, but I know what you mean. Yes. Yeah, no, but, but because one thing is permissible and the other isn't, but, in the end, if you're seeking to glorify God and to honor the work of the brothers and to serve the the, the commissioners that are about to meet, you flex a little on that sometimes. So that was reconsidered, and it came back, and, and uh, the, the, it went exactly the way you've just described. The reason for that being um, that, you, you know, I was looking for my grounds here, but um, the, uh, the part of the reasoning was that um, this is going to go into a a digital dustbin these uh, you know sending it to the president these offices you know, from from a denomination you know uh, is is really a dead end so what if we said something more succinct how would we get to that from here how would we honor the spirit of this because this is kind of a a crisis situation it didn't come up in that debate george but you probably look at statistics on this one of the most frightening phenomena in this whole transgender thing to me is is that over the past few years the number of women transgendering has gone up fourfold. So it used to be primarily a male to female sort of phenomenon, and now it's going the other way, and it's doing it at mm. an incredible pace. So I think the urgency of the situation and the uh, irremediable nature of this sort of uh, surgical work uh, is it create, created a sense of timeliness for it. So they stuck it in the hands of... Um, the, the moderator to appoint that commission in order to communicate as well as possible and have it be done in a more meaningful way. And the determination of the body was that we got to get it in the hands of politicians that might be more accountable than just a blanket letter to Congress so or to the president. So I'm sorry I got <laughs> bad around the details there, but I just don't, I don't recall the specific arguments after we approved reconsideration. That went very quickly. Uh, after that, but, and I don't remember what was so persuasive. Yeah. Well, so so I have the statement that w became Overture Twelve, and w one thing I thought was was great about it was the original statement just condemned uh, surgical and medical gender reassignment of minors. This one says condemning the practice of surgical and medical gender reassignment, comma especially of minors. Yeah. <laughs> so it actually is a, is a stronger, it's going to be a stronger statement. We just don't know what the statement is, but it, it's condemning the, the practice of it regardless um, of whether it's minors or not. So especially minors. And w one thing I noticed about this, once again, back to the, the tenor of debate, particularly online and whatever, when, when people heard it was originally voted down 
in overtures. And then it uh, it had to come back. You know, there, there was this, people were upset about it. And like, why, like, why did it take, you know, why was it as if there was a lot of opposition to it? And I don't remember what the votes would have been on it or whatever. And, and basically it's like, once again, we have to get these statements right. And if it's not right, and this was like a whole page long, the statement that was trying to get approved, you're not going to get that fixed with 130 people in a room. Uh, it's just, everybody has what they think it should say. And it was going to be referred back, but then you guys took it up again. And I like the solution you came out with. Let's get, let's empower the moderator to appoint a commission to draft it. And, uh, and it passed. So I'm glad. I'm glad you're better equipped to speak to that than me. Cause I, you know, everything you're saying, I'm like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, but I completely spaced it. I'm sure it was a blur, man, for you. I, I, so I, I sat in on, on overtures whenever I could. My, the ruling elder I was with also did. Overall, I was very encouraged, and I think uh, I like the direction of where the PCA is going. It, uh, I was very proud to be in the PCA uh, th- this year. So, those are those are some of my final thoughts, Steve. As 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 we are wrapped up, anything you want to share finally it doesn't have to be a summary of GA or anything like that. It can be just what you want to say to people, or or whatever. Well, I, I think I just end by saying, if you listen to this whole thing, uh, even if it gets edited to some degree. <laughs> I hope you take this as analysis and not as as criticism or doom and gloom or, you know, look how bad everyone is. It's nothing like that at all. Uh, the idea was, since this is sort of geared at ruling elders, to let you all know that it's hard to do church. You probably figured that out in your own sessions. It's yeah. not easier with the presbytery or the denomination, but we need you. So come on, George is right. Uh, the temperature is way dialed back. And in the end, despite the intensity of the arguments, God really is glorified there. You've never seen so much fellowship in your life. Such great sermons, such great worship together. It's extremely uplifting. So analyzing overtures and process and criticizing how we can do better is one part, but that's not the most of it. So I just like to end with that. That's a great that's a great word, Steve. Well thanks. I, I really enjoyed this. Thank you for being you're my first interview coming out of General Assembly. And uh, I know it'll be a blessing to a lot of people. Thanks again. Thank you, brother.